coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Her agent called me and said, well, Merrill would really like to rent your cabin for the summer. I had 50 nights booked with my fishermen already that were that I'd been talking to for the last 10 years. Hey, we're going to have a cabin eventually. And I had to I had to decline Merrill Street staying with us. But what can you do? I mean, I'm not going to turn down guys, repeat customers that have been coming year after year, waiting to stay in the cabin, telling them Hollywood came to town. So <laughs> That was Dave Blackburn with one of his Hollywood stories, the Kootenai, Big Bull Trout, and his Bluegrass Band today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. We've grown this podcast grassroots style with one share from one listener. It started way back in the day, a number of years ago, and we've been uh, getting amazing feedback and shares uh, over the years. If you get a chance, this is the best way that we can help uh, share and grow this show and connect and help other fellow anglers out there. Click that share button in, in your app right now, and uh, and let's let's do this. Thanks in advance for your support. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Meal Bars. Each bar is 700 calories and fits easily into the pocket of your backpack, vest, or whatever you need. Range bars are made using only the highest quality gluten-free ingredients, and they are the most convenient and compact way to get out the door and on the river. You can support this podcast and a great local company right now by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash range. That's R-A-N-G-E. Range Meal Bars, a legitimate meal in your pocket. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing. From the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between, Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. Dave Blackburn takes us into the Kootenai and the history and fishing that makes this place so very unique. We discover how he fell into this part of the country and that story. It's a good one. Uh, what a multi-trip looks like here and his, his cabins, his lodges. He's got some really good stuff. Uh, Dave is a name I've been hearing about for a while. And we also find out which species you may have not thought about that is the size of a car and is the reason for this being a protected area and the quality of the fishing out in this area. Plus, did I mention he plays the banjo really well? I return to that old cabin home with the sound. I've been longing for days gone by. When I die, won't you bury beneath that old willow tree? Make my resting Time to finally dig into it. The Kootenai with Dave Blackburn from GoFlyFishMontana.com. 
How's it going, Dave? It's going well. It's just getting light, looking out my window on the river, and it's uh, going to be a good day. Yeah, this is great. You're up in the uh, on the Kootenai River, I'm assuming. You're right there. We're going to dig into that river. It's a uh, it's another one of those big names. You know, you're in a big area, Montana, for fly fishing, and there's there's so many rivers around. I think the last guest we had on was a little bit south of you down there, and I asked him, I said, does it feel like you're in a hot spot for fly fishing? Like, does it feel really, you know, that sort of thing, like busy? Because it seems like it is a very known place. What's your take on that? Well, the Kootenai, you know, it's, it's a river that it's hard to get to, first of all, because our closest airport is two hours away. And uh, before more flights were coming into Kalispell, everybody had to come through Spokane, which is a, a three hour drive. And, uh, you know, it isn't like you fly right into Great Falls and a half an hour later, you're fishing the Missouri. This is a, this is a, you know, place that it takes pretty much a whole day to get to. Yeah, that's right. So it's not an easy, easy one to get to. Once you, once you get in there, we're going to talk about kind of getting there, what it's about. We'll go into some history. You got some, there's some interesting stuff um, about the uh, the native rainbows there. Um, but let's take it back real quick. Just start to, to set the stage of, of you, yourself, and fly fishing. So tell us how you first got into fly fishing, then we'll take it into the Kootenai Angler and everything you have going. Well, I grew up in uh, western Pennsylvania, close to the Maryland border. So we had a lot of the limestone trout streams. And uh, my sixth grade teacher taught fly tying. Uh, classes. And when I was probably in the fourth grade, my brothers were in sixth grade and and seventh grade, and they took this class and I just tagged along with them. And uh, I started tying flies when I was like nine years old. You know, I think my first pair of hackle pliers was a clothespin. And uh, we had these vices from herders that were $1 a piece. (laughs) So I started, I started there and of course, had an interest in the outdoors uh, growing up there. I fished and hunted as a child and uh, ended up going to uh, forestry school in uh, West Virginia University. And they had a placement program for foresters. If you wanted to work out West, you could. And that's right after the movie Jeremiah Johnson was released. And any kid from back East that hunted and fished would want to go see the Rocky Mountains after watching that movie. So. I ended up going out there and working the summers and uh, worked seasonally in the Bighorn National Forest. I was a a backcountry ranger in the Cloud Peak Primitive Area my last uh, two seasons and uh, met my wife there whose father was working on Libby Dam, which was completed in 1974. But there was a lot of projects that were continuing after that. They had a, a floating boat ramp up above the dam and a whole bunch of other projects after the impoundment was complete so he was up here working and and my wife uh said in wyoming she said let's go up and and see my family and i figured well you know it's going to be like a you know three or four hour drive it's probably up above billing somewhere i didn't realize you know libby montana is basically you know 600 miles from billings and uh you're just going from one end of the state way up to the northwest corner and so you know 12 hours later, uh, we pull in, it's dark. I can hear the river. And, uh, the next morning I, I get up in this big, huge river is staring me at the face. It reminded me of a river I fished in Pennsylvania that had a big dam on it. And, uh, uh, it was the Yakagani where they used to do whitewater trips. And I said, are there trout in here? And she said, yeah, I think there are. It was in November because it was after I guided elk hunters down in Wyoming during that time. And that's where I started my guiding experience. 
And I, I got up that morning and put on a sweater, uh, walked up to what we call the home pool now. And there were, there were fish rising and, uh, they were taking these little, little blue quills, kind of a betis type, you know, mayfly. And, uh, I caught, you know, some smaller fish, but there were some larger fish that were out. Couldn't quite reach them. So I went around the other side. I walked out around into the middle of the river. I'm waist deep. And I hooked these fish that just straightened my hook out like a hairpin. I was using 94833, which is a, which, you know, back in the day, mustad hooks were the only ones you tied on. The 94833 was a super light wire hook that worked great for hatchery fish in Pennsylvania. But for these big, wild, football-shaped rainbows, uh, I had to go back to the house, retie a nymph pattern on a heavier hook. And I went back out there and started catching these, you know, three-pound rainbows that were like 14, 15 inches that would just, you know, take in your backing. And it was like a religious experience. And it was like, you know wow you know all as i was used to catching with hatchery fish in pennsylvania and some stock fish in the bighorn high lakes you know which were mostly cutthroats that didn't really fight anything like these native rainbows right yeah the native rainbows and so yeah it's good stuff the old mustad so you probably went back to like a what threw on like a, a 9671 or something like that right yeah 906b yeah right on and I want to go back to the Jeremiah Johnson, just so we don't miss that. I always love to throw a link in the show notes to that. So was that the Robert Redford? Was he in that one? That was the Robert Redford movie, right? Yeah, yeah, classic. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll put a we'll put a link in that in the show notes so somebody can take a look at that. Uh, that's a great one. So basically, yeah, I mean, again, Robert Redford. We take this back. It's been so funny over the years because you know a river runs through it. You probably remember that as of well, course. Robert. Yes. You know, and and the the impact of that, right? How many people, probably the same as you, right? Brought him out to Montana, or at least fishing it sure. around the country because of this guy. I'm hopeful to get Robert Redford on the podcast. We haven't done it yet, but uh, you know what I mean. It's one of those goals for us. So the Kootenai. So tell us this about the Kootenai. It sounds, you know, you've got these native strain of rainbow. First place, like you're way up in this corner. What is it? Um, what's it flowing into? Which way is it going? Talk about that a little bit. Well, basically, it comes out of British Columbia and it flows back into British Columbia. It, it flows south. Uh, and basically, the, um, the impoundment, Libby Dam, was created in, in 74 and it backs up 90 miles of river. And so what happens is, is the, you know, we have 90 miles of lake in front of us with kokanee salmon in and, you know, some rainbows and cutthroats and that type of thing. But the river actually flows uh, north and south until it hits the corner right by our property, which is the first private land below the dam, you know, which is 13 miles just north of Libby. And Dave Thompson was one of the British cartographers that first mapped out this area for the Hudson's Bay Company. And so in the corner of the maps that he made, which are still, you know, very accurate, with considering he just used a compass and a sextant, he named this one area Big Bend. And it's basically where the Kootenai changes from a southerly flow to a straight westerly flow and it flows through Libby, Troy, and then the Idaho Panhandle, enters the Idaho Panhandle and turns north and goes back up into Kootenai Lakes, British Columbia. And uh, it ends up flowing into the upper Columbia in British Columbia at Castlegar. So the the whole river is 385 miles in length and you know of course 90 miles is impounded. So and we're the largest headwater tributary of the Columbia River. So that's why we have the Columbia Interior Red Bands, which are an isolated steelhead strain that used to, you know, an adramus fish used to be 
you know, spirit at Kootenai Falls by the Kootenai Indians. Right, right, right. And that's the connection that we, you know, I'm down in Oregon, which is, again, the Columbia is a massive, massive river. And we on the Deschutes have the Red Band, which is this right. amazing strain. And, and that's the same, essentially the same fish, the same river, same basin. Yep. Just uh, you're, you're a few, uh, I'm not sure how many hundreds or thousands of miles upstream you are from where we are uh, Deschutes, but you're way up there. Quite a few. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. So essentially, I mean, you're in that part of Montana that a lot of people don't think about that there is a connection uh, out to the west, essentially to the ocean, right? right. Historically, before mm-hmm. all the dams that you had, there was probably steelhead coming up into your river. There were, yep. And uh, there was old, uh, there's some old historical photos of Indians spearing fish at Kootenai Falls, and they would use, of course, the big nets and stuff. And, you know, the Kootenai also has a small population of white sturgeon, uh, which has really kind of helped us control the erratic power flows that first happened when the dam was complete, you know, so. Oh, right, right, right. So now it's pretty much a nice tailwater. You've got a tailwater fishery. You guys are. It's a great tailwater. Yes. With some good fishing. Well, let's dig into that a little bit, just on the area. So, so if somebody was going, I always like to think of it as a trip, you know, if we're sitting, you know, I know you do, you guide up there. So you guys do this for a living. What does that look like if somebody's calling you in, right, saying, hey, we want to go fish and get some of these big rainbows? I'm not sure how big they are, but uh, what do you tell them? When's the best time to start thinking about coming to kind of a May sort of thing, May, June? Well, we have a pre-runoff. Uh, you know, the runoff really is held back by the, the reservoir, but because white sturgeon are endangered, um, they're under ESA regulations with uh, the white sturgeon being an endangered species that they have to run the river now like a natural hydrograph. So when the flows are high and coming into the reservoir, they mimic those flows. And usually what happens is as soon as the river hits 50 degrees Fahrenheit, they will increase the flows to maximum powerhouse, which is, you know, the flows range from four to 25,000. And so uh, that's about, you know, four to six feet of elevation change, depending on the width of the river and that type of thing. Uh, but what happens is, is they'll, they'll run it usually about, you know, it depends on how much snowpack we have, but usually they'll run it two to three weeks at that maximum flow so that the sturgeon down in Idaho know when it's time to spawn. So that actually has, has benefited, you know, from the old days, uh, because they just started doing this probably, I would say between 15 and 20 years ago, prior to that, like in the late 80s and early 90s, they ran the thing like a water faucet. They would crank it down at night to minimum flow and and to increase power production and maximize their dollars, they would increase it to 20,000 during the day and then drop it back down at night. Now, you know, imagine what that does to net spinner caddis, you know, so so we were just basically wiping out our insects. And uh, we, I went to a meeting with the technical management team along with Fish, Wildlife and Parks and uh, this is when sturgeon were first being listed as endangered. And, and basically, you know, they agreed to basically not do uh, power peaking anymore, what they call now load factoring, which is a, a softer term. But power peaking was just, you know, when they run it like a water faucet. They do some load following now uh, during the winter time, but usually it's not quite as dramatic to the, you know, the Below 9,000 CFS is where the rocks start showing, and that's where all the insects are. They'll do load following now above that in the wintertime, probably, 
you know, from 10 to 20,000 through the winter a little bit. And it doesn't affect the insect population as much as them doing it during the summer, you know? Yeah. Gotcha. Can you fish this thing? Is this like year round because of the tailwater? Yep. It's a year round. It doesn't freeze. We have no, uh, back in the old days prior to the dam, uh, the old timers, you know, I of course wasn't here then, but they said the river used to have a lot of what they would call periwinkles with, which was just the, the slang term for the, the big, uh, you know, stoneflies, the big pteranarsis and all that. But now, since we don't have those ice scouring flows, you know, the, the bottom of the river doesn't have the big, large pores. And so the stoneflies, there's a few of them around, but they've really diminished in, in population. And so being replaced by caddis and uh, some of the smaller mayfly species, we got a pretty good, uh, the green drakes have made a really good comeback from when they used to do the power peaking, which pretty much wiped them out. But now we're seeing, you know, two to three weeks of pretty good green drake uh, activity during the, in the evenings is when they come off, you know. Oh, right. Yep. What time of year is that when the green drakes are coming off? Usually around the uh, second, third week in July is when we see those. And some of the tributaries, they'll be a lot sooner than that. But on the Kootenai, it's a little bit later. And, you know, we had some of them, you know, hatching in September last year. So tailwaters can be a little bit fickle in terms of timing. Right. What is the, uh, I mean, the Kootenai River, Kootenai area, what is it known for? Why? I mean, because I definitely, like we said at the start, there's a lot of, it's a very known, is it known for the fishing more? There's some other things out there it's known for. Well, the Kootenai, the original name came from the Kootenai Indians and the term was what the French uh, called them because the French trappers loved the deer robes that the Kootenai Indians would tan. And so that Kootenai name basically means deer robes and uh, uh, which is, you know, just that came from an archaeologist that worked for the Forest Service that gave us historical lessons on the river during the time that, you know, my guides like to tell stories and all that type of thing. But the Kootenai, we were the main supply port to Western Canada before the Transcontinental Canadian Railroad was, you know, joined. And basically there were sternwheel steamboats that would dock right across the river from our property at a place called Jennings. There was an old river town there right at the end of the, uh, you know, 1890 to roughly 1915. And they ran, you know, there's a railroad that came in here. They would load up the sternwheel steamboats and head up to Nelson, British Columbia when the river was high. Of course, they couldn't do it when it was low, but usually they would run those steamboats up until mid-July, you know, most years. And then the river would drop to where they couldn't get them up there. But that's uh, one neat thing about, you know, the Kootenai. And we have some historical photos of the sternwheel steamboats in, in our restaurant. Oh, wow. That's right. So you have a, well, we're going to talk about your restaurant, talk about more on what the, you know, the trip looks like, but the history thing is kind of interesting. Well, it's, it's really interesting, you know, what you have going, because I think that's part of it. The Kootenai is just this famous, you know, area from the Native Americans through to that history you're talking about. Right. Sounds like there's lots to do up there on top of fly fishing, right? So if you were to go there on a trip, you would, you could not only do some fly fishing, but there's some other things to do around town. Yeah, there's there's a historical museum and there's uh, the you know the Cabinet Mountain Wilderness, which is 160,000 acres of uh, grizzly bear habitat, uh, which is designated roadless. And you know there's a trail system through there. It's like a mini version of Glacier National Park. So, and what they what they've done is some of the problem bears from Glacier that they didn't want to euthanize. They would bring over to 
Libby and the yak and they would drop them off because we were such, had such a low population base. But, uh, we actually did have our first mauling, which was, uh, uh, several years ago, I think, uh, there was, she was on the meat eaters podcast and a little gal was doing some sampling up in the cabinets and surprised a sub adult male and, and knocked her around and bit her skull, but she lived through it. She lost hearing in one ear, but, uh, you know, it was one of those things where they put a, one of those, you know, bear hair trap things too close to a crick. And so you couldn't really make noise to when the bear happened to be laying down there, but that was, uh, that was our, basically, we've had some bluff charges and stuff up until that point, but this little gal walked all the way out about three miles to where her pickup was and then drove down to the road with her head, you know, held in a sweatshirt. And it's a pretty amazing story. And she's back doing it again. So. Oh, wow. She didn't, yeah, she didn't give it up. Did scare her away. That's pretty amazing. Yep. Yeah. So this is, so it is a pretty, uh, you know, a, a cool area. You've got some stuff going on there. Let's take it back to that trip. So if we were coming in and, and I was, you know, recalling you up and we want to do a trip out there, what do you tell somebody that says, hey, we want to help the Kootenai do some fly fishing? What's the first thing? Where do you start there? Well, basically you tell them, you know, about the, the seasonal progression of the hatches and different things like that. Like I said, the pre-runoff before they have the river up at maximum flow and even at maximum flow at 25,000, I'd be out of business if I couldn't produce fish during those high flows. But you know, it is a kind of an intimidating river at those high flows, but we have pre-runoff where we have, you know, some of the smaller stonefly species will be coming off March Browns. Uh, we have blue wing olives and that type of thing. And then moving into, as the river starts to drop, usually by the first part of July, they have the river down to about 10 or 12,000. Then we start getting into the very heavy, consistent pale morning dun hatches and the caddis hatches. We have what we call a happy hour hatch where all the caddis, they have their, their mating swarms and then they'll come down and lay their eggs on the river uh, during the time the sun sets and when it gets completely dark. And that's a, that's a great time to, to swing caddis with a, you know, you could swing a, a we use an X caddis with a little pupa behind it. And it's just amazing. You know, we have one rock where we were, we were fishing two flies. Each angler had two, a caddis with the pupa on and uh, one of them had a soft tackle instead of the pupa. But we, we call it quad rock because we had doubles hooked up on both rods. And uh, oh, right. that was pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we didn't we didn't land them because you know you get into those twelve to fifteen inch fish and they'll rip you a new one even on four x tippet if you hook two up at the same time. Oh yeah, <laughs> are you guys doing most of this like floating fishing out of the boat or is this like walk and wait? Yeah, it's it's float fishing. You can do some walk waiting at the lower flows, but you know, and when we first started guiding here, we would basically just you know the river would be at minimum flow through most of the season because they ran it a lot differently uh, back then. And, uh, so you could actually, you know, do a lot of walk wading along with just, you know, drifting along and then you get out and work the water that way. But now, uh, since the flows are up higher, it, it's more conducive to just float fishing. And, you know, we're starting to do, you know, we're adding swing and Euro techniques to that. And, uh, you know, I think we're one of the few outfits where we're actually doing some Euro from a drifting boat. Uh, and, oh, really? yeah. And so it's pretty cool to see. I mean, we don't have a lot of, you can't really do it where there's a lot of wood in the river, but, you know, in a freestone situation where you have, you know, just a lot of cobble on the bottom, you can get away with drifting. And, you know, those Euro nymphs are, 
designed to float with the hook point up so you're not snagging a whole lot but boy if you get into a lot of wood you really can't do it when you're drifting but it's very effective i mean i i couldn't believe you know when you don't have fish i we prefer dry fly fishing or you know is what most clients like to do see those fish coming up but when they're not coming up the euro uh, technique has been very effective amazingly effective Today's episode is sponsored by Trestle, who has earned an exceptional reputation over the past few years in the fly fishing industry due to the popularity of their telescopic fly rod roof racks and statement-making artist series apparel lines. Their latest release for 2023 is the Jerian Universal Bike Rack Packing System, a brand new way to transport your fly fishing and outdoor gear. The Jerion will give any modern bike the ability to bring 30 pounds of gear with its front and rear articulated racks. Whether you ride a full suspension mountain bike, an e-bike, or even a carbon fiber road bike, the Jerion will get you and your fishing gear further faster and have much more fun along the way. I can tell you this has been a big struggle for me. I've been riding my bike, uh, both road bikes and mountain bikes, and had lots of issues over the years packing my gear, whether that's uh, crappy uh, storage on the back or a trailer that's just too big and bulky. So I'm excited to share this packing system, which is going to make it way more convenient and accessible to get out to the places you need to go. You can learn more about how Trestle is transforming the way you access your favorite water, backcountry, hunting zones, and camping spots. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Trestle right now and be the first on the water and the farthest upstream and away from the crowds. That's Trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E. Trestle, live your pursuit. You know, we actually have a Euronifing school we're putting together down south of you, and we're, we've got the couple of the, the the gold medal winners, or at least the folks that are, you know, kind of way better than, than myself on that. They're teaching the course. But it's pretty interesting because, yeah, it's super effective. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where it just depends on what you want to do, right? Like, do you want to... Do you want to fish streamers? Do you want to dry fly fish? What do you find that people, when they come up to your area, they feel like they want to do? Is dry is the first thing they're really interested in getting into? Dry fly fishing is definitely the most popular. When people hear that we have, you know, season-long dry fly fishing, they really like that. A lot of people don't like staring at bobbers. And, and you know, it's been a, you know, it's a very effective way to fish. And But, you know, we we teach dry fly fishing and making proper drifts and making the right kind of cast from a drift boat and that type of thing. So it is by far the most popular way to fish. However, you know, with some of the bigger fish that the Kootenai does have the state record rainbow now. Oh, it does? Yes, it does. It was a 29-pound fish caught by a guy from Kalispell up right below the dam. But I want to talk about fish size uh, right off the bat. Now, keep in mind that the Kootenai is... You know, it's a tailwater fishery, but it's it's a glacier-fed system. So it isn't like, you know, the tailwater like the Missouri and the Bighorn, where there's all kinds of biomass and the nutrient load is very high in those rivers, where the Kootenai has a low nutrient load. In fact, Libby Dam is a big nutrient trap. So our growth rate is much slower than those other rivers. You know, on, on the Missouri, for instance, I have a good friend that uh, started his business about when I did. And, you know, they're, they're getting a two-year-old fish is, uh, you know, 14 inches long on the Kootenai, a two-year-old fish is like eight inches or nine inches. And so our average fish, you know, we're seeing a lot of three-year-olds, which are 
you know, 12 to 13 inches in length, but we don't have the average, you know, 16 to 18 inch fish that you see in the bighorn in the Missouri. We just, but our fish are strong and they're a whole different strain. And, but we also have the biggest rainbows in Montana simply because there's kokanee salmon above uh, Libby Dam in the reservoir. And so they come out of the wicket gates and the turbines. Some of them come down, out stunned. Some of them are cut in half. And so these big rainbows just grow to enormous proportions up there. And uh, there's guys that are using, you know, they, they still allow bait fishing up there. And the whole upper river above the Fisher River Bridge is a, uh, it's closed to harvest unless you catch a fish over 28 inches. So we have a three mile section that's like a trophy section. Uh, but, you know, there's guys that are putting Rapalas, fishing it off the Dave Thompson Bridge at night with, uh, you know, eight inch jointed Rapalas and catching big rainbows. But actually there's quite a bit of mortality in those. And so there, therein lies, you know, we have a smaller average fish than the rest of Montana, but we have some great streamer fishing for rainbows and we, we can't purposely catch bull trout, but we have incidental catches on bull trout, you know, all the time. In fact, we were out about a week or so ago, one of the guides and I were just up there burning off some cabin fever <clears throat> and, you know, he hooked a nice 12 pound bull trout. You know, you just take a quick picture and put it back. We have probably the healthiest bull trout population in Montana. That's right. And bull trout. And so they're a species you can't really target. You can't target them, but, you know, by using the sinking lines that we use for the big rainbows and so forth, you, you'll catch almost 50% bull trout along with the rainbows. And that proportion changes, you know, that the bull trout population is very cyclic. And uh, what's cool about them is, of course, they're a native fish as well. And uh, one of the biologists, they told me that they put a transmitter on a bull trout in the Troy reaches, which is below Kootenai Falls. Kootenai Falls was thought as a natural barrier because there's no sturgeon above the falls. But a, a bull trout that had a transmitter inside went all the way up through Kootenai Falls, probably when the river was up high and was right below Libby Dam. So that's, that's pretty cool. And, and, you know, River Wild, the movie with Meryl Streep, was filmed at Kootenai Falls. And, of course, more recently, The Revenant, where, the, where he went over Kootenai Falls with the buffalo hide, that was in the, the DiCaprio movie just recently. Good. We'll add some more movies to our mix. We'll have a nice uh, mix of movies in the show notes here. Yeah, actually, uh, another movie that was made in the 80s, uh, it's the Firefighter movie with Holly Hunter and Richard Dreyfuss. And I met, uh, I met Spielberg when they were making that movie. Oh, you did? Yep. There you go. There you go. I think I found it. Uh, yep, Spielberg. Why do I not remember this one? It was called um, Always? Always. Right. I was going to say that. Right. So that's a good one to watch. I'll have to. I definitely missed that one. I'll put that one in maybe. Uh... Yeah, and that was a that was actually a remake of a guy named Joe, which was about a World War II uh, fighter pilot with Spencer Tracy and Irene Dunn, where he wrecked, where he was killed in World War II, and then was kind of a ghost that would come back and hang around Irene as she's dating this younger guy. And so Richard Dreyfus was the bomber pilot that died saving some firefighters. And so he came back and ghosted Holly Hunter as she was dating one of the younger pilots. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Pretty cool movie. I got to teach him how to how to cast on set one day. And so he's telling him how to put the fire in the smoke while I'm 
you know, showing them how to cast. Pat Kehoe is executive producer fished with me all the time when they made that movie. And uh, I never saw guys that were able to drink as much beer as that film crew could drink and still fly fish coherently. Oh, really? <laughs> so is that Dreyfus? Was Dreyfus a big uh, beer drinker as well? No, no, that, no. It was, uh, it was Pat Kehoe, his uh, executive producer. I never, Spielberg never got out on the river with us, but uh, I took his executive producer. But I met him on the set and he wanted to know how to fly cast. So that was fun. Gotcha. What about John Goodman? It looks like John Goodman was in it too. Yeah, I never got to meet Goodman, but I had lunch with Dreyfus and Holly Hunter. Oh, he did? Yep. What was Dreyfus? What was he like? Oh, he was just popping one-liners all the time, and he was just a happy-go-lucky type guy. He was pretty funny. Yep, that was, uh, I think, his next movie after Jaws or something like that. Oh, right. Yeah, Jaws. That's right. Gosh, there you go, Dreyfus. <laughs> nice. Well, good stuff. So, uh, you know, you have the bull trout. So that's another cool thing, which you sounds like you catch frequently out there just fishing. Like, are you catching those on when you're doing streamers or on all different techniques? Well, we actually, you know, sometimes they'll, you can catch a small one just fishing a hopper, but you know, they'll, they'll take nymphs below hopper droppers. They'll, they'll take nymph rigs, they'll take streamers, you know, and some of the rainbows that are approaching, we have a club called the 30 inch club, which we have a uh, several customers that are in that where they catch fish over 30 inches. And, uh, you know, we're using some big, you know, five to six inch long streamers because we've had rainbow and bull trout attacks where they come in and I've had a big rainbow come in and try to eat an 18 inch rainbow that was a good size fish. And so you'll have these, you know, anytime a fish is struggling, the, the higher end predators, you know, that's kind of a tip off. It's just like a, a wounded elk with wolves, you know, it kind of keys that predator instinct so you know we do have these big fish that come in and i remember one year i think all the guides had at least six or eight bull trout attacks in fact a funny story was when i had a marine biologist that studied great white sharks and off the coast of california and you know he's bringing in a fish and a roughly a three and a half foot bull trout came in right next to the boat and made a swath at the fish that he was just lifting out of the water. And he just about went over the other side of the boat because of the reflex from working with the great whites. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yep. He recently, uh, we did a bonefish exploratory trip to Palau where he did his master's in marine biology. And that was an interesting trip. <laughs> right. Wow. This is cool. And the bull trout, you can just, like you say, you're fishing for, you can't target them, but you catch them frequently just fishing for rainbows. Right. And, you know, you just keep them in the water, maybe take a real quick picture and then put them back. We we really uh, don't want to harm them because they are, you know, an indicator species and they're, you know, they've been here forever. So I think some of the bull trout are in that 10 to 12 year old range. You know, you can catch our biggest one that was ever taken was about a 41 inch bull trout that was probably 25 pounds. So they get quite big and we we basically call them Kootenai Timon because they they're very similar to the Timon in Mongolia. Oh, right. Yeah, they look like them, right? A little bit too. And then the rainbows too are native. So are those not, they don't have quite the same protection or how does that look like bull trout versus the red bands? The red bands, you know, the Center for Biological Diversity did petition to list the red band rainbow. Uh, I don't know what status that is in yet. The bull trout are a species of concern under the Endangered Species Act. White sturgeon are an endangered species. So there's different levels of protection. And so far, 
the red band rainbows do not have it, but you know, that opens up a whole nother can of worms, you know, like on the snake river down in Idaho, they're starting to kill non-native rainbows and brown trout to try to build up the cutthroat fisheries. And, uh, you know, you have to, you have to wonder about that. I mean, my goodness, are they going to try to kill all the brown trout in the Madison river eventually someday? It's kind of a scary thought because I grew up in Pennsylvania with brown trout and I think they're great fish. And, you know, of course, brook trout are non-native as well. And so there's, there's a lot of different concerns over, you know, the native fish management. I think we definitely have to protect them, but it comes down to what the sportsmen desire, I guess, you know? Yeah. We always go back to, you know, and we try to do this on all of our events. We're doing this in the, the Euro school we're doing where we're going to try to find a local conservation group, right? Because, you know, we don't have all the don't know everything but if you could find one of those local groups there they can help shed light on it and it's all unique right it's like you probably are a lot different than down in idaho right some of those places where you know maybe there are some places where brown trout are you know maybe not the best but in some areas yeah sure you're never going to take them out of the sure i don't know the madison or some of these places because right. it's like especially just the the fishing i imagine the uproar of taking out some of those big browns would be crazy and at a certain point, you look at it historically like, okay, these are wild fish. How long does it have to be there until it's called a wild fish? Right. You know, I mean, there's some length of time. Brown trout have been there for what? Probably a hundred years, I'd imagine. Oh yeah. I think they were, they were put in in the forties and in fifties. So I would say at least 70 years, you know, when they brought the uh, railroads out is when everything was according to, that was from an old study when they, when they did the, uh, did the study on when they were still stocking Montana and they decided to work on mitigation for the streams rather than stock hatchery fish. Jim Vincent was his name. That was a famous study. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Vincent. Yeah. He's the guy that basically I think started the whole hatchery program out West or something like that. Yep. Right. Or maybe it was out East. Yeah. Well, this is good. I think there's a lot of way, you know, a lot of uh, ways we could take this. Uh, you know, I want to dig in, you know, we're talking the fishing. So we got the rainbows. It sounds like they don't get quite as big, but you've got these big bull trout. But when you're fishing there, I mean, when people come there, is this more a day trip or are there multi-day trips in the area? What does that look like? We do up to, you know, five-day trips. Uh, usually in five days, you can have a pretty good idea what the fishery is like. You know, to come here and just fish it for a day, if the fishing's off and, and so forth, it can, I always like to tell people, try to spend more than one day and three would be really good. We sell a lot of the three-day uh, packages and uh, that way they're seeing a different section of the river. However, you know, some guys say, hey, I want to go where I missed that big, that big fish yesterday. So they're fishing the same water for three days and, you know, you can definitely fish it differently. But the Kootenai is a, it's the second largest river in the state you know, in terms of mean annual flow. So it's not a, you know, it's averages 150 to 200 yards across. So it's big water, even at minimum flow. And uh, there really isn't many places. I, I don't think you could walk across it anywhere just because the current would knock you off your feet, but it can be weighted, you know, up to 10,000 CFS. There's places where you get out of the boat and you can, you can work runs and that type of thing. You know, back when I uh, first started guiding, and the river was doing a lot of the flow fluctuations from four to 20 and then back down, I'd start my trips at two o'clock in the afternoon and we'd fish it until, you know, 1030 at night because we would try to incorporate that happy hour caddis hatch, which is when you got to see a lot of fish rising. But since that time, they've stabilized flows to where we have 
a flat flow regime, meaning there's no raising and lowering on a daily basis. They basically have, you know, flat flows throughout the day and then they'll change it gradually if they want to drop the flows. Uh, we've had pretty good dry fly fishing starting in the morning. I mean, you'll have PMD spinners that are on, you'll have some blueing olives that might be coming off. And so we, we do a lot of, uh, you know, a tractor with dropper fishing, you know, like a Royal Wolf and a black ant work really well. We do a lot of the, you know, chubbies with a bead head and all that type of thing. But uh, we're seeing some real consistent dry fly fishing throughout the day, starting, you know, as early as our pre-runoff to, you know, after the high flows. And we see that kick in usually around the end of June or first part of July. And so you can fish dry flies all day long, which is kind of nice. But, you know, the guides all carry streamer rods in the boat with the right setup. So, you know, I tell people don't worry about bringing the perfect line and everything, just rely on the guide. And and so, you know, we'll, we'll put them in the spots where we know there's some big fish that might be a drop off, uh, a tail out or something like that. And we'll work streamers for a while. And then we'll go back to, you know, dry fly fishing after we pass that spot. So you, you can basically, you know, you could streamer fish the whole way down. I've had guys do that. But, you know, a lot of people like the diversity of, of fishing the different ways. And, you know, we'll carry, you know, a nymph indicator rig. We might have a Euro rig, dry fly rig, a dry dropper, you know. So we have almost like a golf bag of clubs. Just, okay, line that up. We're going to run from here down. We're going to do hopper dropper. Right, right. That's cool. And so, yeah, so the summertime, it would be good if you want to just pick a time. The weather's good. There's lots of hatches going on. Would it matter, you know, whether it was July, August, September, October, would all those be just as equally good? They're really good. Moving into the fall is when the water, you know, we have glacial silt in the river. Like right now, it looks, uh, you know, has a lot of glacial green color to it this time of year. But usually, you know, by the end of runoff, you'll have that, you'll lose that milky color usually by the second or third week in July. And then it just turns just keeps getting clearer and clearer and clearer and september is one of my favorite times to fish because the water's so clear and normally the flows are a little bit lower and it seems like as soon as we start getting our first frost you know the fish feed with veracity more so than they do during the hot dog days of august and that type of thing you know so that's really the fall is my favorite time so fall and then you guys talk about your the I'm not sure if you guys have the lodge or restaurant what that looks like if somebody was coming up there do you have, do you have the full deal there? Yeah, we basically we built our first cabin in uh, 92. I started guiding on the river in 82, so this is going to be our 41st season. And uh, you know, as I built my guide service up, uh, having the forestry degree and you know, I was marking timber for a little bit when I first got here, but I was actually a a timber faller, so we would we would cut trees in the morning. You'd be done at one or two o'clock. And then I would have the afternoons to take my kids swimming or something. And then I would guide through the evening hours. And so I was a timber faller when I first got here. And so I, I cut the, I got a forest service log permit and uh, cut my load of logs. I had a friend that uh, did the log work. And so I think I built my first cabin for under $15,000 in 1992. And we had it in a newsletter and Meryl Streep during the movie River Wild wanted to stay on a cabin uh, along the river, which we had the only one that was a rental. And um, her agent called me and said, well, Meryl would really like to rent your cabin for the summer. And I had I had 50 nights booked with my fishermen already. Oh, wow. That I'd been Whoa. talking to <laughs> for the last 10 years. Hey, we're going to have a cabin eventually. 
and I had to decline Meryl Streep staying with us. Oh, you declined Meryl Streep. Look yeah, at that. but what can you do? I mean, I'm not going to turn down guys, repeat customers that have been coming year after year, waiting to stay in the cabin, telling them Hollywood came to town. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, unless there was a price, right? Maybe if there was, a, they didn't give you an offer you couldn't refuse, right? It wasn't quite that level. Right. We didn't get that far. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So yeah, we built our first one in, in 92. And since that time, we have, we added three more. So we have four cabins. We have um, roughly close to about three quarters of a mile of river frontage that I bought when you could still afford river frontage in Montana in the 80s. And at the end of our property, we have two more rentals with our uh, restaurant. And we added in, in 2001, we bought an additional 10 acres, which was adjacent to our hayfield. And uh, we have a couple of cabins down there. So a total of four cabins with a on-site restaurant, which is open to the public. And it's closed for a couple of months in the winter, but we'll open it back up around mid-March. And, uh, you know, during the busy time of the summer, we'll do... 80 to 100, sometimes over 100 dinners on a weekend night. So it's a it's a busy place, you know, kind of a steakhouse. And we have a staff of about eight that help us out down there. And then I also have seven guides that work for me. So it's a it's a busy summer. Yeah. So you guys are busy. What's the summer like? When do you start getting really busy? And then when does that end? Usually by mid-June, we start seeing, you know, quite a few people uh, coming in. We'll do maybe you know, two, three boats a day through June. And then in July, it could go to five or six. Sometimes we'll do eight boats. But, you know, normally, you know, all the stars have to be aligned the right way to have eight guides be able to help you out at the same time. So we we have, you know, three to four full-time guides and then some part-time guides that help us out. Yeah, gotcha. And are you guys putting in, like, as far as the drift trips, are you putting in right at your place or below the dam or and then floating down? Or what's that look like? Well, the floatable section of the Kootenai, with the exception of Kootenai Falls, is 50 miles. And so there's three to four different floats on the Troy reaches below the falls. Uh, we also uh, do canyon floats in the section that's directly right below Kootenai Falls through private access. Where's Kootenai Falls in relation to, say, Libby? Kootenai Falls is 10 miles uh, west of Libby. And then you have Troy, and then Troy to the yak is about another 10 miles. And then the yak to the Idaho line is roughly about five miles. So we, we have a takeout. They just put a takeout in about six years ago at the uh, state line. So we're now able to, you know, float the lower Canyon. There's two Canyon stretches with these great big 800 foot walls that go up. One of them is below Kootenai Falls and the other one is right below, uh, right before you get to the Idaho line. And they're just beautiful sections, you know? Yeah. Gosh, that's amazing. And then then you have Highway 2, which is right, pretty much going between Troy and, you know, in your place, you got this highway. Is that pretty much the main thoroughfare? That's the main route. Yeah. Highway 37 starts in Libby and it goes up to Eureka all the way along the reservoir. And Highway 2 coming in from Idaho is, is where, you know, you would come in from Spokane or Sandpoint, Idaho. And then Highway 2 is the high line that actually goes through Glacier Park and through the High Line to Montana, out through Hap and so forth. Oh, yeah, through Glacier. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It's been a while. Yeah, I've been up in that area, but I've never been right by your place. Sure. Well, you know, the Flathead, um, since COVID, the Flathead Valley floated an undersheriff uh, last year, and he said there's 40,000 more people that came into the Flathead Valley. So, you know, the whole Flathead area is just getting overrun with people. And uh, 
you know, the nice thing about Libby is there's only, you know, only roughly about 10% of the ground in Lincoln County is privately owned. Uh, the rest is the national forest. So, you know, we're not going to see a tremendous amount of growth because there just isn't a whole lot of private land. But what is private is certainly, you know, getting subdivided and we're seeing, you know, big hay fields around getting filled up with houses and that type of thing. Sure. Yeah. But you guys are just enough. You're, like you said, remote enough, 600 miles up out there. And it's just, uh, it's going to be a while before anything. There's got to be some major changes for you guys yep. become the next, um, I don't know. What is the fastest growing town in Montana? Like, uh, I think the Flathead Valley, somebody was telling me it's growing faster than what we call Bos Angeles now. Yeah, Bos Bos Angeles. That's where all the stoners are moving to. They call them stoners in Montana from watching Yellowstone. (laughs) Oh, right. Yellowstone. I see. I haven't caught that yet either. This is great. That's the great thing about Montana is that you guys have all the, it's like all Hollywood wants to go there. It's perfect, right? Yeah. It's like, that's where everybody, you want to do a film about the, uh, the outdoors, Montana, you know, it's like, go right. Yep. Well, they just filmed the last, uh, series was filmed right in Missoula, which is, you know, Missoula is again, about a three hour drive from us. And so the thing about the Kootenai, you know, I wanted to mention it is a river that hasn't had, I mean, you know, some folks call it famous, but it's really, it doesn't have the name that the Madison and the Bighorn and the Missouri have. I mean, it's a great, you know, big Western river and so forth, but we just don't have the traffic because all the outfitters here have to be permitted through the Forest Service. And there's only like four of us. And so it isn't like when the fishing's not good other places, for instance, like down in Southwest Montana, all the guides go to the Missouri. And, you know, I heard a few times that it took two hours to put a boat in and Craig, you know, and so we're not seeing any of that here. You know, we have busy days where the, the parking lot might be, you know, full of boats and trailers and do-it-yourselfers and rafters and that type of thing. But, you know, overall, we don't see the traffic that a lot of those other Western rivers receive. And, and that's our saving grace here. You can still experience solitude in a big Western river rather than seeing, you know, you know, 50 other boats up and down the river from where you're out fishing. That's right. So is there a river, is there a section where you can do like, you guys do like a multi-day float camp overnight in the canyon? Uh, There is sections that we, we do that, but since, you know, with the cabins and the restaurant, we just haven't really pushed that. But I was looking at uh, doing a a stretch. There's a, some private access right below the falls where I could put a a teepee and we, we were going to do an overnight tent camp and that type of thing. And uh, uh, the whole area was inundated with poison ivy. So that was one place where we thought about doing it, but then we, we just, uh, after finding out what it costs to, you know, take care of poison ivy, we decided not to do that since we didn't own the property anyway. So, but there is, you know, for people that do want to camp along the river, there's a lot of places that you can do it on, you know, it's forest service property on islands and that type of thing. And our fly shop does shuttles for, you know, folks. And sometimes, you know, they'll say, okay, I want it down there by, you know, there's a, there's basically the, the stretch above the falls. We do an eight mile stretch to the re-rig and then there's another eight miles. So it's 16, there's about 26 miles that you could float down to the last takeout above Kootenai Falls. So there is possible places where you could camp. And so that would be available to people that want to carry all the gear with them and that type of thing. Today's episode is sponsored by Stonefly Nets, putting quality before quantity with their handcrafted custom wood landing nets. Charleston, South Carolina native Ethan Eigelhart was bitten by the fly fishing bug in 2014 
and shortly thereafter started Stonefly Nets. He now lives in the trout-rich waters of the Ozarks and handcrafts some of the sweetest wooden landing nets you'll see. I've been using these Stonefly Nets for quite a while now, and I'm excited to dig into another year. Ethan builds these nets custom, and you can select from four sizes and many different wood options. For Ethan, fly fishing is a memory created from a morning on a beautiful stretch of water casting a three-weight bamboo rod that his grandmother gave to his father, and then he passed to Ethan. Ethan is helping us create the same types of lasting memories every time we're on the water with these classic custom wood nets. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com stonefly to check out your custom net right now. That's wetflyswing.com stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to stonefly. Okay, back to the show. How big is Kootenai Falls? Is there a, probably put a video or something to that? Is that just like a massive series of falls? Yeah, it's roughly around a half a mile long stretch. The highest uh, point in the falls is a 30 foot drop. That's the steepest drop. And that was made famous with River Wild. And of course, since that time, it's a playboater's paradise. You know, kayakers in the big pontoon rafts have been running that. And uh, my son, actually, uh, during his junior high days, he had a mentor show him how to safely go over Kootenai Falls in a kayak. And, you know, when my wife and I first went down there to see him do that the first time, to see him go land in the foam and then go under the water and take about three to four seconds to come back up, you know, your heart's in your throat. But, you know, he wanted to do a motorcycle. And after I had some friends die in motorcycle crashes i said no i'm not going to get you a motorcycle i'll buy you a kayak <laughs> without even thinking that he would be going over kootenai falls but he he was on the wave sport kayak team for a couple of years and he actually went back east and made videos for wave sport kayaks so oh wow so he's doing some uh sounds like he's like a pro kayaker at that level yep but he got back into fly fishing in his later years and now he's one of the prettiest spay casters you'll ever see Oh, Roy. So he's, you guys do some spay out there. Is that another part of the area? Yep. We do spay and he loves to do warm water. So he'll, he'll, uh, you know, tie up a lot of these bass and pike flies and, you know, he doesn't spay for those, but he, he and I were fishing, had a, had an evening off and we went up uh, below the dam and he took about a 15 pound bull trout on a spay rod. And that was a, a really nice. Just swinging, swinging flies. Yep. Just swinging flies. Yep. And that's what he loves to do. That's right. Yeah. The Kootenai. Because of the size, it would be a great a river for the big space stuff. Certainly is. Yep. Yeah, gotcha. Wow. So you guys, pretty much, it sounds like you have a little bit of everything. You've got even now with the spay, and, and you've got some other warm water species. And so you got the cabins, the fly shop. If somebody wants to come up there, they could just call you up and say, hey, you know, we want to stay this night, whatever, see if there's availability. And, they, and is the cabin, like, enough room for, a, like, multiple people? How big are those? Yeah, we have we have two bigger cabins that are, like, um, the smallest one is 1500. Well, that's roughly 2000 square feet with the porches and it has two separate bedrooms and full kitchens. The other one is even bigger than that. So there's two bigger cabins that you could put four to six people in. And then we have two smaller cabins that have, you know, the two queen beds separated by an enclosed bath. So we can do groups of up to 14 people. And then, you know, we basically do meals down at the restaurant. So we run a, a full service package, you know, including food, daily uh, guiding and lodging for 500 bucks a person based on double occupancy. And that's been, that's been a very popular uh, package. Right. No, it sounds cool. And I, 
I always think, like you said, the stuff down south or around Montana where it's busier. I mean, the thing you guys offer is you've got this area, which is amazing, you know, just kind of this wild. It's probably less people. Maybe you're not getting the rainbows quite as big, but it sounds like there's a chance that you could hook into. I mean, is there any, could you hook into a, a bigger rainbow? Oh yeah. When you, when you streamer fish in the Kootenai, you're catching fish anywhere from 14 to, you know, 35 inches. So you never know. And the, you know, the big rainbows are hard to hold. I mean, uh, my head guide, Joe, last year uh, caught a rainbow on a hopper dropper rig that was, I think, 32 inches. And that was a that was a great fish. And, you know, we would have lost that fish if the angler had not known how to play a big fish. But, you know, just the location of where that fish was hooked, he could have made runs around big boulders and that type of thing. But he just, you know, they took their time landing this fish and it was in great shape when they released it. But you don't always land these big fish because they'll just rip you a new one. And some people don't, you know, they might have the line wrapped around your fighting butt or whatever. I've seen all the different ways you can lose fish, but you know, they'll hit you so fast that, you know, if you have your rod down and don't have that tip up, they'll just, yeah, they're just gone. I've had them break, um, you know, two X tip it just on the, on the hit, you know, so it's amazing. Yeah. Gotcha. So yeah, so there is a potential. And I guess, like we said, these are red band trout. There's the connection to the steelhead. So there's that, you know, if they've got the genetics that they're a, a big fit. And if, yeah, you hook a 30 inch fish, what are the chances? I mean, is it, you have a better chance hooking a bigger fish doing the streamers versus the dry or Euro stuff, or is it all equal? You never know when you're going to get a big one. In the evenings, when we have the big caddis activity, that's when you'll see some of the bigger rainbows come up for dries because, you know, they'll grab you know, one rise, they'll be able to get five or six caddis pupa in one rise because they're just all matted together in certain places. Uh, but streamer fishing is by far the most effective way to catch the big rainbows. And uh, to have the right, you know, sinking lines, we use shooting heads of different proportions and so forth, depending on, you know, the water that we're fishing. We use a type four sink tip line. And, you know, Jeff Courier was up here fishing with me a while back and we used the scientific angler stillwater line and Jeff is probably the best fisherman I've ever been around. You know, you learn a lot just watching him, but he was fishing these jigs and caught a beautiful, you know, I think it was an eight or nine pound rainbow just in the home pool here. And, uh, he, he really can, and always he was using was a scientific angler stillwater camo, which is, uh, actually a, a clear line which, uh, you know, you can grease it, it'll float, you can let it sink. But if you have something heavy on, it just goes right down with it. But you have more of a straight connection to that jig than you do with a sink tip where you have a great big belly in your line, you know. So that was really interesting to watch him do that. And I applied that same method when I was fishing Iceland uh, last August. And I was the high fish count on uh, the Hokna River in Iceland. I caught 13 Atlantic salmon including one fish that was like 18 pounds. So watching him enable me to do that in Iceland. <laughs> Amazing. We just had Jeff on and uh, we're doing a little mini season series on, uh, it's called Traveled. And he was our first guest, episode number one. Right, right. I think I saw that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was good. He dug into it. It's pretty cool because he started out, he was just down south, but he just moved out to Wisconsin and across the country. But he, yeah, that guy's obviously, I think he, we're at like... Um, 400 and some odd episodes he's at like 400 some odd species i know i know isn't that something (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's pretty good 
Okay, good. Well, let's uh, let's jump back in and just kind of start to think about, you know, as we take it out of here. Um, I just want to focus on, again, you know, we're putting that trip. So I could see coming up here and even you guys have groups. So if we had a group of people or if it was a single person, if somebody was just like, hey, I want to stop by. I'm going to be in the area, maybe doing something. I'm doing traveling up to Glacier. They could swing by, call you and say, hey, come oh, yeah. to the room. Yep. They get the cabin, yep. maybe get a day trip. And if they said, hey, we're going to be there and say, you know, late August, maybe there's a hatch going on. What do you tell them as far as gear? Is it just your typical um, kind of, you know, trout stuff, that sort of thing? Well, basically, you know, with the amount of people that don't want to carry all their gear, you know, we're doing a lot of, uh, uh, on our guided trips, we provide gear. I'm a Winston pro staffer. So, you know, I carry Winston rods in the boat. All the guides have, you know, rods in their boat and so forth. But, you know, basically for people that do want to use their own gear, uh, nine foot for a five weight is your dry fly rig. I mean, I, I use an eight and a half four for a Winston I use like a softer rod that's just a little bit more forgiving for people that are heavy handed with their strikes. But nine for a five is average, you know, maybe a nine, six or a nine, seven to throw streamers or nymphs. And, um, you know, I carry a 10 foot bureau rod in the boat as well. But, you know, the 10 foot two weight, you know, Winston makes those. I have a super 10 that I was using over in Iceland that was really good. And that's a, those are great rods, you know, to have the light tip on it so you can actually feel that nymph you know, when a fish takes it is pretty important. So that's basically the gear that you would need. And we provide the flies. So it isn't like, you know, you come into the shop, like I've, I've heard other places where, you know, you'll buy $60 worth of flies and you can return them at the end of the day if you don't use them. And, you know, most people don't. So we don't, uh, we don't push that. We just provide flies and, you know, if somebody uses a few more, that's fine, you know, whatever. Sure. That's it. So this is pretty, and like I said, if you're coming there in August or July or whenever, you could call. You get the shop. You've got the fly shop, the Kootenai Angler, yep. and just get a rundown. Here's what's going on with the hatches. Throw some flies. Maybe stop by the shop. Yeah, and we can we can a lot of times do last minute guides, you know, as well because I have guys that are you know they let me know when they're available and that type of thing. And you know, our if we're doing you know package trips with three to four days with groups, we always have other guides that are available to do day trips. You know, so pretty flexible in that department. Cool. No, it sounds like a good trip and one of those things where, like you said, you're just off the beaten path just enough to keep it, um, you know, not quite as busy. So can you find when you're floating the river out there, do you find places where you kind of get your own area and you could, you know, basically not have a bunch of boats floating by you? Or is there always some people around during the, the floats? You know, surprisingly enough, even during the peak season, which is probably August and early September, because we don't do the same stretches all the time, but there's, there's sections where you won't see another boat. I mean, we have private access going into a canyon below Kootenai Falls. And, you know, the only other boat you would possibly see would be a motor boat that would come up all the way from Troy. That section is just beautiful. And, you know, you might see another boat after you get past where the public access is in Troy. But the Kootenai, I would say on average during the peak season, if you see you know, more than six or seven boats in the course of a full day fishing, that's going to be the exception to the rule, you know, and a lot of days you might, of course we, you know, when we have a large party out there, we don't put six boats on the same section. I mean, you know, we're, we split up our boats, maybe put two to a section and, you know, normally you'll have the timing difference or somebody might, you know, and all the guides on the coot, you know, there's other outfitters that work here. And, uh, you know, we get along and we have, 
we have guides that are independent contractors that may work for three different outfitters. And so we know everybody and it isn't like, you know, you have, you hear about the, you know, sometimes pretty uh, almost fights that happen on some of the other rivers where somebody comes in and goes right over their water. That doesn't happen on the Kootenai. Now, as we get more people moving in here, you know, we might have to, you know, let people know, hey, well, this is how we do it here. And so if we're fishing this hole, you might want to go on to the other side of the river. I really haven't had to do that except but a few times in the last 10 years or so. And, you know, you have to be nice about that, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. No, it sounds really cool. It sounds like a, a place that would be, you know, whether you have a big group or just a small group, it sounds like you can kind of be a place you can get away from some of the crowds right. and get and the diversity, too, of types of techniques, you know, catching the rainbows. You got a shot at a big bull trout, even though. You know, I mean, it's not against the rule. You can't or describe that a little bit. You can't target them. Well, what it is, it's called, you know, when you're streamer fishing on the Kootenai, the population of bull trout is pretty high. And I would say, just like, for instance, the other day, we caught two bull trout. We didn't catch any rainbows. We were fishing deep water for rainbows primarily because, you know, that's, a, that's the target species. And if you catch a bull trout, it's called what fish, wildlife, and parks says as incidental take and so these incidental takes happen but if there are bull trout staging the spawn in a creek mouth in two feet of water a 30 inch fish and you see the big white margin fins you're not supposed to cast to that fish and and i'm sure some of that still happens you know with some people i don't know any other guides that are doing anything like that but you'll get people that see these big fish and they might be trying to catch them with worms or something. I mean, who knows? And so that's something that you can't do, but you know, these bull trout are in 15 to 20 feet of water and you know, there's no distinction on, okay, well, I hope a bull trout does. I mean, you know, there's, it's just one of those things If a bull trout eats your streamer that happens and it happens pretty frequently. Yeah. So you could say like in your, at your shop, you can say, Hey, you want to go bull trout fishing? You know, here's a bull trout. I mean, you can go fishing for bull trout, right? We don't say that. In fact, I, I try not to post bull trout on Instagram or Facebook. However, you know, uh, I remember some years ago, uh, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I, I posted a nice bull trout and, you know, I actually got unfriended and I tried to explain, hey, the Kootenai, and this is somebody from Southwest where they didn't really understand the whole situation up here. And, you know, that's where you social media sometimes, uh, you know, people don't understand where you're coming from because they don't know what the river's like and so forth. But basically, you know, bull trout, we don't target the species. If somebody says, Hey, well, I'd like to catch a bull trout. I said, well, you know, we streamer fish for rainbows and there's a pretty good chance you, you might catch a bull trout. That's basically how we have to say it. So. Gotcha. You can't say that you're guiding for bull trout in my Yeah, there you go. But I will I will say there were several in the IF4 films before the fly fishing shows. You know, they have the film on Friday night. There were at least three shows made of Kootenai River bull trout that were in the reservoir that spawn in the Elk River in British Columbia where they can target them. They're making big money targeting Montana bull trout that spawn in the Elk River up in British Columbia. So to me, uh, that just kind of, you know, I don't understand why they have this big thing in Montana when just across the border, even our Montana fish in the reservoir are being caught with frequency by targeted fishermen. 
I see. The same fish, so literally fish that are in Montana are migrating upriver. Yeah, same fish, yeah, in British Columbia. They don't have that ruling, so. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, we did an episode a while back with the, um, I guess the person, yeah, with the Fly Fusion magazine. That, oh, right. That I have four, he talked about. I don't think we talked about the Kootenai, but we did talk about bulls a little bit. And actually, it took us up to northern uh, BC, up to the upper Skeena Basin, where they have bull trout, right. yeah, where they're focusing. That was up there in a... Another cool area. I mean, there's so many, you know, I mean, you're in one of those spots. I think that's the, the Kootenai. I think it does. You mentioned earlier, it doesn't have the name of the Madison, but I think just from the outside, it does have an equal name as far as, I mean, it's as well known, I believe, you know, I mean, the Madison is probably the most well known, but it's right up there. You know what I mean? And yep. it has less pressure, which is a good selling point. Right. You know, if you if you're, I don't even know the Madison. It's been a while. I haven't been down there, and I mean, I can imagine you hear the stories, like you said. I mean, if you know the area, you got a guide. I'm sure the guides can get you into some, you know, what I mean, get away from the crowds a little bit. But man, I can imagine that's a tough one. Yep, that's for sure. Nice. Well, I mean, we touched on a little bit. We didn't go deep into the, uh, you know, the techniques and stuff. But it sounds like really it depends on what you want to do. If we were coming up there and. You have a you know a dry fly rod, maybe a euro rod, maybe maybe bring the spay right. Talk about sure. you know bring like your son, bring the trout spay, maybe swing some flies for rainbows, hook a couple bull trout, and those are the species, right? We also have you know there's probably ten percent West Slope cutthroat, which are also a native species. They're different than the Yellowstone cuts, and uh, they grow a little bit fatter. I think they love dry flies. Yeah, and they they love dries. They don't quite fight. They don't come out of the water like the rainbows do. I mean, just to give an example, you hook a rainbow here, he's going to jump five, six, sometimes eight or 10 times. And uh, the other rainbows in Montana don't jump like that. I mean, these are just really acrobatic. They fly out of the water when you hook them. Yeah. Well, that's the red side I know on the Deschutes. You know, you'll be out there fishing for trout. And sometimes you will hook a steelhead, you know, because obviously there's steelhead there. And But sometimes you'll get a trout that pulls. It'll be that same pull, like feels like a steelhead tug. Sure. And you're like, oh man, is that a steelhead or is that a red side? Right. right. Because they're just powerful. And that's a, that could easily be a 16, 15 inch fish that's doing that. Sure. Yep. Yeah. And then the your river is 10,000 plus CFS. So now you got the flow, they get out in the current and I can see why you could, you, you'd be toast, right? Right. And you know, these fish as well, you know, like on some of the rivers, like the Madison, they're pounding the banks, um, different things like that, uh, where they're fishing banks a lot. These Columbia red bands are right out in the middle of a deep run in fast water. And it's amazing where they hold compared to some of the other rainbows that I've fished for on other rivers. I mean, they'll, you know, we'll be fishing the middle of a uh, run that might be 15, 20 feet deep in big boulders. And uh, there'll be fish just coming up in that fast water. It's just amazing to see the strength of these fish. And that goes back to, you know, their native strain. Exactly. Well, let's take it out of here. We've, always, we've been trying to do the uh, the two-minute drill uh, segment. You know, it forces us to take it out of here. And, and I got a few questions if you want to jump into this, and this will uh, wrap up the show if that sounds good to you. Sure. We'll, we'll start the timer here. So we'll just kind of give you a few, see if we can get some quick answers on some quick questions. So we talked about the historical stuff. Is there a good resource online or somewhere out there where people can dig more into that Kootenai, that part of the area? You mentioned the museum. I'd imagine they probably have a website. Are there other any other things you'd mention? Well, there's a Libby Chamber uh, Commerce website and the Libby Heritage Museum. Uh, and, of course, Glacier Country, but that basically deals with most of the flathead and that type of thing. You know, Sources of the River, it's a Dave Thompson journal. If somebody really wants to get into the history, 
It's a great book. Sources of the River. Perfect. I'll put that in the show notes. What about a conservation group? Who would you recommend up there? We talked about some of this stuff. Who's a, is there a local group up there or somebody you'd recommend? Yeah, we have uh, we have a Trout Unlimited chapter up here. And uh, I was actually a regional director on that, as well as uh, the Fishing Outfitters Association in Montana. Now, we don't meet very often. We're going to have a spring meeting when we're they're talking about doing some nutrient enhancement where they're going to actually drip phosphorus and nitrogen into the Kootenai to add more nutrients, which is what Idaho has been doing. And so we're going to be meeting this spring and talking about that because it's slated to happen in 2024 next year. So that ought to be good. Nice. Well, uh, so, and then I saw something was John Garrock. Was he also up in there on a trip? Yeah. Yeah. John was up fishing with me. He's fished with me. I took him up on the Elk River before there were any outfitters up there in the late 80s. And uh, then he uh, went up with uh, some other outfitters over the years. And I've known him for a very long time. I like his dry sense of humor. Yeah, me too. And his, you know, the way that he writes. And so he was up here in September, uh, I think it was two years ago, and um, had a great time. He, he was he was amazed at the strength of the fish. He says, well, this is another 16, 17 inch. It hit the net at 12 inches, you know? Yeah. Right. 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 That's it. So what was he coming up? What was the thing he was excited to get up there for or the last time he was up there? He only fished in the, up in Canada. He never really fished the Montana side. So I finally got him down here and, uh, he loved my dog. I have a, a German short hair that goes with me in the boat when I have a single customer. And of course she squeals when you, have a pretty good fish on. I have to keep her tied up in the back or she'd be all over it. But he got a kick out of my dog and he's just a, a great guy to have in the boat and, you know, listen to his stories and all that type of thing. He, he, uh, enjoyed the, I played a little bluegrass for him, you know, so he enjoyed that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the bluegrass because we have the, uh, the Sheldon mountain boys, right? You guys just came out with a, you have an album out there. Yeah. It's been out almost 10 years now. Oh, wow. 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So you play the, uh, the banjo. Yep, I do. And I uh, entertain for the fly fishing shows in um, Edison, Atlanta, and Denver, and Pleasanton, California. So, Oh, wow. Yep. Oh, so you're going to be at the shows this year. Yep. I'm going to be leaving here next week to do the Edison show. Good. Oh, Edison, right. Yeah, I think I'm not sure if I'm going to make it out east, but I definitely will uh, see you at Pleasanton this year. I'll stop by and, Good. and say hi. Good. Yeah. Well, we had uh, back in 317, which was probably about 100 episodes, we had uh, Brandon Moltzen on from up, up, well, again, up north of you in Canada. He played a little lick on his banjo. Do you have an opportunity to, to bust something out here today? I do. Yeah, sure. All right. Here we go. <laughs> There's a well-beaten path on that old mountainside I wondered when I was a man And I wandered alone to the place I come home With all the riches so far away Oh, I love those hills of Virginia And old Blue Ridge Hills where I've been born When I die, won't you bury me on that old mountainside Far away, my Blue Ridge cabin home Oh, 
now my mind wanders back to that old brown shackle shack far away in those blue ridge hills. And my mother and dad, they are lying there to rest. They're sleeping in peace together there. Oh, I love those hills of Virginia. In those blue ridge hills where I've been born. And I die, won't you bear me on the Far away from the cabin home. Oh, far away from the Wow. <laughs> that was amazing. There you go. <laughs> nice. That was perfect. So, Shelton Mountain Boys, can we get something in the show notes as well if they want to listen to some other stuff there? I'm not sure if you're on Spotify or something like that. You know, we're not. We just have the CD, but I could link them to our. I have another band I'm playing with called Boulder Crick, and maybe I'll send you a link to our Facebook page. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, anything we can do so people can follow up and have a listen, that'd be great. And then, great. Well, anything else before we head out here? That was the perfect uh, the wrap-up, I think. Uh, maybe just give a shout-out here. Um, we're kind of into 2023. Anything big going on for you this year? Another just a good year of guiding out there? Well, yeah, along with you know running the business here, I went to uh, Cuba, Iceland, and the Amazon. And this year we're going to do an Amazon trip again. And then also I'm going to be going to Iceland again to the Hulkner river where I help, you know, with some entry level anglers that a good client of mine takes me over there to help with his group and a lot of fun. And so I'm starting to get into this hosting and uh, I'm going to be hosting two weeks of Cuba fishing through uh, Avalon outdoors. And that's going to be uh, the first two weeks in May of 2024. So I had one of my best saltwater trips. I've been saltwater fishing for, you know, well over 30 years. And I caught two permit in one day down in, in Cuba last, last May. And uh, I was just amazed at how good the Cuba fishery is. Right, right, right. That's awesome. Well, maybe we'll have to circle back around and check in with you at a later point on some of that stuff. That's great. You're getting into all those trips. Uh well, I guess we're going to, we'll leave it there for today. We'll send people out to goflyfishmontana.com if they have questions for you. And um, yeah, Dave, I think uh, this has been great. I appreciate you shedding some light on that part of the country, Montana. It really sounds like it would be a great trip for anybody heading out there. So yeah, just appreciate all your time today. All right. Well, thank you very much. So there it is, making our way across the country, across the northern part of the country. And we've been on the road a while and we are excited and a little bit tired we're rolling into this area and we're going to grab a, uh, a cabin for the week and kick back and we got some fishing ahead of us tomorrow so excited uh, to dig into this one wetflyswing.com slash 416 416 that's the best way to get some show notes uh, get all of our links and some good stuff there'll be a video over there as well uh, I'm thinking a video what is the cool video from this one um, we're going to have to surprise you on that check it out right now 416 listener shout out before we get out of here Ryan Putty, Ryan, uh, made a vote for Stillwater and Saltwater episodes. More of that stuff for the podcast. And Ryan's hailing from the Puget Sound area. Uh, Ryan connected with us through the email list. And uh, and want to thank Ryan in advance. Uh, actually, thank him right now for the support over the years. And want to let you know, Ryan, that yes, we will. We have you covered on the Stillwater. We got Phil Roy on for the Littoral Zone podcast series so he's going to be serving up crazy podcast uh still water content for you uh, and we definitely will be doing more puget sound episodes as well uh since you checked in here so stay tuned for that 
If you're listening now and you want to get a shout out here, maybe let us put together an episode for you. The best way to do that is to reach out to me on email, dave at wetflyswing.com or on social. Anytime, send me a DM and I would love to hear from you. would love to put together an episode that gives you a little more value and maybe even a shout out here, Uh, likely a shout out. If you give me a heads up, I definitely will be doing that. So right now, if you haven't connected with me, do it right now. I'd love to hear for uh, where you're coming from, whether that's the U.S. or abroad. I always love to connect. Let's take a look where we're heading next. Okay, where are we heading next? And we are serving up some good stuff. As we mentioned, the littoral zone uh, coming in this Thursday. Uh, We got Phil Roy, and this is going to be a great episode. I think this one is going to be one where he is actually interviewing somebody else. So excited for that. This is going to be the first time that has happened. And, And next week, next week we're heading to Norway. We're heading to Norway to dig into some of the good stuff. Uh, we got Josh Bond on next week, and uh, and we got a bonus, a bonus podcast, uh, another podcaster on next week. So I'm not gonna uh, give that away right now. But we got some big stuff, and I'm not even looking into further. But um, man, okay, as we head into March and this year, as we really dig into it, I'm excited, very excited to dig into this and share what we have coming. So we just launched the Euro School, and actually tonight, just realizing this, tonight, as this goes live, if you're here listening to this live, tonight, we are announcing the winner, the winner of the giveaway event. Tonight, we are announcing the winner of the Euro School. This is the big trip we're doing out to uh, the South Fork of the Snake. Uh, giving away a huge trip, a huge prize pack. I think we've got, this is probably the most products we've given away. The value is crazy. So, and the great thing about this is we do this this live event today, later on today. We always give a few bonus products. So, if you're interested in maybe getting a chance at a reel, uh, it could be, you know, I'm not quite sure what it's going to be, but it's going to be something. It's going to be something. So, stay tuned if you want, even if you missed out on the big event uh, stay tuned tonight and grab that. Uh, grab us on our live event on Facebook. You can just go to Facebook, Wet Fly Swing, and you should be able to see us enjoying that there. I'll also put a link in the show notes uh, as well. All right. Well, I hope uh, that you get a chance. This trip we're giving away is actually going to also be uh, what we call, this is our school, but it's also host a trip. So if you're interested in getting on the water with me, going to one of the most amazing places in the country, and also upping your Euro Nymph uh, game by basically two of the best people we have in the country, in the world, uh, in Stillwater, uh, the gold medal winner. This is the place you want to go. we got a limited number of slots, so right now you can check that out. Uh, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash Euroschool, and that's the best place you can sign up and actually get a slot, and, uh, and you can actually reserve your slot right now. So we got limited slots, but if you want to do that, get on it right now. And I would love to see you on the water, but if I don't, check in with me online. Would definitely love to hear from you online or on the water as always, but I hope you are having a good morning, a good afternoon, or good evening wherever you are in the world. And I appreciate you supporting this podcast and looking forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.
I caught a trucker from Philly, had a long night smoke. He was headed west to the Cumberland Gap, Johnson City, Tennessee. I gotta get a move on and I'm fit for the sun. I hear my baby calling my name and I know that she's the only one. And if I die in Raleigh, at least I'll live free. Rock me, mama, like the wagon wheel. Rock me, mama, any way you feel. Rock me, mama, like the wind and the rain. Rock me, mama, like the southbound.